life where he actually comes to faith in God in the Old Testament. Uh, but now for the past several weeks, we've been looking at that middle time, that time where he's sort of growing up in the faith, where he's learning how to be uh, an overcomer in the Lord. Uh, in studying this part of the life, of Abraham's life, we've learned especially two things. We've learned in Genesis chapter 16 and then in Genesis chapter 17 that it's possible to have victory even in the midst of dismal failure. You remember the story, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar concocted a plan of their own uh, that would bring in the promise and uh, it, it didn't work. It was a failure. There were these 13 dark and dismal years. And what we learned there was that uh, God really can work in our lives even when we have failed. The other thing we saw in the past couple of weeks is in Genesis 18 and 19. Up until this point in time, we've not met Abraham in prayer. We've seen him a man of faith. We've seen him stepping out. But now he sees these, uh, he meets with these three angels and God begins to instruct him in prayer. And what he may think was a failed prayer, even for his nephew Lot, but he begins to learn of the importance of fellowship with God and with prayer. Uh, in Genesis 18, while we were studying that passage, uh, I think there were two questions that Abraham asked that give us the theme now for Genesis 20 when we move to this section of his life. Question number one that Abraham asked, if we can get that up there, and if not, I'll just read it for you. Genesis 18 asked, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? The question of who's a good man? Who's a good person? Who's a righteous person on this planet Earth? That's one of the questions that God, that Abraham raises in the course of his prayer. And that's often the, the kind of question we raise. Who really is a good person on this planet? And then the second question he asks uh, in that context of Genesis 18, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And it's easy for us to point our finger at God and say, God, you're the one. You're the problem. You're not solving the issue. Won't the judge of all the universe, the judge of all the world, won't he do right? And so there's this question of who is the righteous, and there's a question of God doing right. So I think Genesis 20, with that kind of a lead-in, is, is kind of God saying back to us, okay, let, let's talk about that for a while. And, and as I study Genesis chapter 20, I think there are spelled out for us here in God's conversation with us in the course of Abraham's life, what I call three truths about being righteous, what does it mean to be a good man, and about doing right on this planet, that mature believers, people in that middle stage, that we just must nail down. If we don't nail these things down, then we can't enter into the level of maturity that God wants us to finally get at in our Christian life. Now, I'm going to state these just kind of for a way for you to hang your hat on the thoughts in terms of sort of good news, bad news. You remember the old good news, bad news jokes. Well, this isn't a joke, but it's sort of the good news, bad news format that I'm going to use. And I'm going to start each time with bad news and then move to the good news. And the first piece of bad good news is some bad good news about sin in our lives. And you'll see it here in Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Read with me. Follow along as I'm reading. It says, Now Abraham moved on from there. He was at uh, the, uh, the trees of Mamre, is I think what it was described as the last time we saw him located, which is about central southern Palestine. 
but Abraham is a keeper of sheep, and so he needs to take his flocks where they can graze uh, the best. And so he was living uh, there, but he moved from that region into the region of the Negev, which is south in Israel, down toward uh, Egypt. <clears throat> and he lived there between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while he stayed in a place called Gerar. And so now he's moved back up north and then over to the coastline just a little bit. And while he was there in Gerar, he said, said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. And then Abimelech. By the way, Abimelech is probably not a man's name. It's probably a title like Pharaoh. Uh, we're going to meet a couple of Abimelechs in the book of Genesis. It may be a father and a grandfather, so far as we know. But uh, it's a title, Abimelech. He meets this ruler, Abimelech, king of Gerar, and Sarah is taken by Abimelech into Abimelech's, well, his harem, so to speak. Now, if you've been following the story along so far in Genesis as we've been studying the life of Abraham, you doesn't this sound a little familiar? Doesn't it sound like we've been here before? Because it should. In fact, almost exactly the same thing happened back in Genesis chapter 12 in Abraham's early years. Let me just remind you of that pattern as we look back at Genesis 12. Got just a little chart of what happened here. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, we can see two or three things happen. First of all, God appears to Abraham. Uh, he appeared to him in Ur of the Chaldees. This is a place in Mesopotamia. He said, now if you'll follow me and go to the land that I'll show you, I'll give you a promise. And sure enough, he does give him a wonderful promise. I'm going to bless you uh, and all those people that uh, recognize that blessing in you, I will bless them as well. So there's this appearance and a promise. And then in chapter 12, there's this sister ploy. Abraham says, you know, Sarah, everywhere we go, um, people are going to want you. You're so beautiful. You're so attractive. And I'm so wealthy. And they're going to try to get, you know, a piece of the action there. And so would you just say that you're my sister? And then we can sort of negotiate and figure this thing out. And that will give me time to think. And they won't kill me in the process. And, and I can begin to wheel and deal. And, and it never worked. It just never worked for Abraham. Every time he tried it, because the first time, Sarah was taken. She was taken into Pharaoh's household and God had to rescue her. Now, in Genesis chapter 20, we see exactly the same pattern again. Abraham has been appeared to by God. The three visitors that were explaining to, to Abraham what he was going to, what they were going to do. And there was another promise given. And then, in uh, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, we see Abraham taking this sister ploy again. He's going to try to use the same old technique that he's used before that didn't work the time before and then sure enough in chapter 20 verse 2 it fails and Abimelech takes Abraham's wife Sarah into his harem now there's an interesting addition in this uh, particular part of the story if you will look down at oh say uh, verse 13 of Genesis chapter 20 uh, Abraham is showing really the very depth of uh, the kind of person he is. Now, I know none of you people would ever say this to your husband or your wife or to your children, but right there in the middle of verse 13, actually we'll just start reading. And when God had uh, had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, that is to my wife, to Sarah, this is how you can show your love for me. If you really love me. If you really love me. Sarah, if you really love me, 
this is what you will do. So Abraham is using sort of this, he's, he, he's, he's getting Sarah involved into his plot by pulling this old, if you really loved me, you'd do this for me, sweetheart, kind of thing. Okay, so what we begin to see here is that Abraham is fallen into an old pattern of sin. And I began to ask myself, you know, couldn't Abraham see what he was doing here? I mean, he's done this before. He knew it wasn't going to work. The passage a little bit later on says that he's done it several times before. This is their common practice, he tells them. We'll look at that a little bit later on. Didn't he know this wasn't going to work? There's a story about a man uh, in the Old South who was uh, brought to court for the umpteenth time. And this time he was brought to court accused uh, of hitting a relative with a brick. <laughs> and the judge turned to the man and he asked, Why in the world did you hit your cousin with a brick? Well, judge, the man answered, I hit him because he called me a thieving rascal. And the judge says, Well, you know, looking at your record, you are a bit of a thieving rascal, aren't you? And the man said, yes, sir, I suppose I am. But judge, suppose somebody called you a thieving rascal. Wouldn't you hit him? And the judge said back, well, I'm not a thieving rascal, though, am I? And the man said, no, you're not. But suppose somebody called you the kind of rascal you are. Wouldn't you want to hit him then? And the judge was kind of caught in his own trap and said, well, I guess I wouldn't like it very much. And you know what? None of us do. And so we hide from those deep-seated patterns of sin, don't we? We don't want to be called the kind of rascal that we really are. You see, sin is like a self-deceiving addiction. Everybody, it seems. I mean, everybody can see it in me, but me. I can't see when it's coming. I can't see who it's hurting. If you only loved me, you would do this for me. I can't see who it's hurting. And I can't seem to see that it never works. Just like Abraham, we tend to sin the same old sins and we tend to sin, sin them for the same old reasons, don't we? And that's a part of the point that this story is making to us about sin. But along with that, I think there's a, a parallel truth found in these same two verses. Uh, looking at these two verses, I remember I heard a speaker on this passage one time talk about how God deals with rebellion in our hearts. And now we're coming to the good news. God can use even our deepest patterns of sin to help us to grow. This person said, if an individual, say, refuses, oh, let's just say, uh, to be submissive in the right way to his or her parents, well, what typically God will do is to take this person as they're growing up and place them under a tough coach, say, in school, or maybe give them a couple of really difficult teachers uh, that they have to endure with. Now, if this uh, individual still doesn't learn how to be properly submissive, and there is a proper and an improper way, then uh, God will expose them later on in life to a harsh employer or to a no-nonsense leader in the military. And then ultimately this person said, if the person won't eventually learn the lesson of submission at all, they may end up in prison or even worse. 
And I think that same principle applies to all of us. I find it in my life. I don't know what our issue is. I don't know if it's the deep-seated sin of rebellion. I don't know if it's sexual temptation. I don't know if it's a dishonesty like Abraham seems to have had at a deep part of his personality. I don't know if it's anger that you struggle with. I don't know if it's a tendency to lie to other people so that you'll look good. Abraham had that part of his problem too. I don't know what it is. You name it. You know. You probably know what that thing is that you keep bumping up against. But here's the principle that this Christian educator said that God takes to use to grow us, and it's this. If we refuse to face our sins, we will be tested in those areas again and again and again and again. God will keep bringing me into the same kinds of circumstances, different faces, different people, different places, same issue. Over and over again. Now, why would God do that? Why is He so concerned to root out this deep-seated sinfulness in me that I don't want to see and I can't see? Well, it's because I think He's designed something better for us. Uh, I haven't quoted C.S. Lewis for a while, so I've got a good C.S. Lewis quote for us this morning, okay? C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, says this. He says, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and that's what he does in the process of salvation. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not at all surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and doesn't seem to make much sense. What in the world is he up to, we begin to wonder. Well, the explanation, Lewis says, is that he's building a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up some towers. He's making a courtyard. You see, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and dwell there forever. Lewis said. That's what it's all about. He's transforming us, not just little minor repairs. He's transforming us to be like Christ, the person that will dwell in us forever and ever and ever. That's an important truth, I think, about being righteous and doing right that growing believers need to nail down. We tend to sin in the same old patterns. And God can use those patterns if we'll give them to Him to transform us. Well, that brings me to the second major hit heading and uh, in Genesis chapter 20. Now, we're going to be looking at this midsection from verse 3 to 13. And uh, I just want to read the first part of that section now, verses 3 through 7. And it's sort of the bad news. Uh, I'm calling it being good enough isn't good enough. Let's look at uh, Abimelech, and I'm going to ask you to note a couple of things along the way because these are sort of highlights. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. Would you kind of underline or note or mark that uh, there? God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You're as good as a dead man. Circle or note or mark that dead word. You're as good as a dead man. You're as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near to her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Okay, there's the other word I want you to notice. 
the whole idea of being innocent in this. Remember, we're talking about righteousness and sin, the idea of innocence. Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? And I've done this with a clean conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept. Notice that. I have kept. God says, I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let. Do you notice that phrase there? I did not let you touch her. Now it appears that uh, what God really did was to send some kind of a sickness uh, over a number of people in the household. And so none of them were interested in romantic kinds of things at this particular point because of the sickness that he sent. God had kept this from happening. Now, verse 7. Now, return the man's wife for, and here's the next thing I want you to notice. It's kind of this. He is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. It's that whole phrase that we're going to take note of. But if you don't return her, you may be sure that you and all of yours will surely die. I think this conversation that God has had with Abraham is a wonderful illustration of a biblical doctrine. Uh, Theologians call this general revelation. And part of the reason I say that is because of the words that I ask you to mark out. The first word is the word dream there. Now, there's an Old Testament scholar teaches at Wheaton College in in, uh, the Chicago area. And he's made a note of this. He studied Near Eastern backgrounds at the time uh, Abraham lived. And he says... In the ancient Near East, dreams are one of the most common forms of God speaking to people. In fact, he says, in the Mari text, which is a set of writings that come from that period of time, it's usually not the professional pastors and teachers or temporal, temple personnel, he says, that receive God's speech through these means. It's the ordinary, common man on the street. Now, that's really interesting because I think that's a tip-off. I think this word dream here is being used of the common way, common grace way, general revelation way uh, that God speaks. And general revelation, uh, according to our understanding of this in the Bible, general revelation is any knowledge of God that can be attained in any way, whether through nature or conscience or even things like ordinary Dreams, general revelation. In fact, there's this verse I'll show you. Psalm 19, uh, verse 1, has this marvelous, marvelous statement about general revelation, uh, talking about the heavens declaring the glory of God. Uh, and having a little difficulty getting that up there. Let me just read it for you. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth their speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no knowledge or speech where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now I want you to pay close attention to that. What that means is, is that when the sun comes up and the sun goes down, And when you see the beautiful horizon, when you see storm clouds blowing in, when you see the flowers growing, when you see your garden blossoming, when you see your garden blooming, when you see the things of nature, you are hearing a word from God. He's saying to you, I'm a beautiful God, aren't I? I've created beautiful things. 
I'm a glorious God, aren't I? I've given you all these glorious things to live on. When you see the hard side of reality, when you see the spider catch a fly in the web, when you see people get hurt in automobile accidents, what God is saying is, you know, and I'm also a God of judgment. I'm also a God uh, that can ha- that has a harsh side. We're learning some significant things about God just by the common, ordinary things that surround us day by day. That's general revelation. You don't even need the Bible to hear God's voice speak to you in that way. That's general revelation. Abraham or Abimelech is being spoken to in general revelation. Now, there's a second thing that this passage shows us. I ask you to mark the word, you're as good as a dead man. One of the interesting things about general revelation is that it typically comes accusing and condemning. It's a very hard word. So this person that says, I don't need to come to church, I'm just going to go out you know, and worship God on the golf course, or I'm going to worship God under a tree, or I'm going to worship God just as I should. You know what? Those people will hear from God, but they're going to hear a very hard word from God, just as Abimelech did. General revelation typically says, you're as good as a dead man. You can't possibly measure up. Now let me give you an illustration of that. One of my favorite writers uh, uh, that I read early on is a man named Francis Schaeffer. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. But Francis Schaeffer says, imagine this. Conscience is, is one of God's forms of general revelation. Suppose you had, does your computer have one of those little mini webcams, you know, that, that kind of looks at you, your laptop or your computer? Do you have one of, suppose you had one of those little webcams right up there that's recording all of your thoughts all of your conversations, and all of the scenes of your life. And so somebody steps in front of you at the line, and you say to them, you ought not do that. That's something you ought not do. That's wrong. Make a little record of that. that that's your law that you're imposing on the universe. Somebody butt cuts in front of you, you know, as you're driving along on the highway, and you have to weave to swerve together, and you say, you idiot! Don't you know? You know what? Suppose that were just, you know, recorded up there. Suppose all your little moral judgments, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not good, he's wrong, they shouldn't have done that. Suppose you just record your own moral judgments. Now suppose that you came to the end of time and the judgment seat of Christ, God didn't say anything other to you than just to play your tapes back to you and said, here it was your standard by which you measured all things on this planet. The question is, did you live up? Did you measure up to your own standard? And Francis Schaeffer says, you know, just by playing those tapes back, we all stand under condemnation. That's what general revelation does. So, yeah, I'm not saying you can't learn from God by playing golf or being under a tree. But what you're going to learn from God is that this is a very hard world. It's a very unforgiving world. You're going to learn from God that your moral judgments are very strong. And if God played nothing else but those back to you, well, you and I would be as good as a dead man. Now, it just so happens that uh, there is no law of uh, Moses given at this point in time. So why would it be wrong for Abimelech to have taken a married woman? The law of Moses isn't here yet. How would Abimelech know that it's wrong to take a married woman? Well, he knew it was wrong because his culture said it was wrong. No law of God, but people just knew it was wrong. 
general revelation. And if you go against what you know is wrong, even without the Bible, that's the standard that will be used to judge you. General revelation. Now notice the third thing about general revelation is that it's very, very fair. But it's also very, very firm. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Abimelech hadn't gone near to her. He says, the Lord will destroy an innocent nation. Abimelech says, I'm innocent. Uh, Did he not say to me, she's my sister? I mean, didn't he lie? And didn't she say, he's my brother? Didn't he lie? This is a Christian talking to a non-Christian. Didn't he stretch the truth just a little bit too far, God, and you're holding me accountable? I've done this, he says, with a clear conscience. And then God says, doing the same dream, yeah, I know. I know you've done it with a clear conscience. Is God being fair with him? I think he is. But is he being also very, very firm with him about the results of what he's done? Well, I think he is because he says a couple of things here that we all need to be reminded of. Remember, I ask you to note those phrases. I have kept you from sinning. I did not let you touch her. There's this expression that we hear every so often on TV. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Do you understand uh, the underlying thought behind that statement? What you do in the dark stays hidden. If you do something in the dark, you'll never have to be called accountable for it. That's a test of morality, isn't it? Can you go to Vegas and still be a moral person? And so that's kind of the question God is raising here. What would you do, Abimelech, if you would never get caught? If you knew that you wouldn't get caught, if your own moral emotions, your own, what kind of man would you be then? And here's what I really want you to know, Abimelech. You thought you were doing this on your own, but all along, I was keeping you from doing this. All along, I was putting a hedge around you. Young people, you want to get out from under your parents. If I could just live my own life, if I could just live my way. As we get older, the same thing. If I, just, if I could just be free. If I could just do... And you know what? God puts that hedge around us and that's His gift to us. He keeps us. He's very, very fair with us. He won't accuse us of things that we shouldn't be accused of. But He's also very, very firm with us. Meaning, I want you to know that even what you think is good may not basically be traced to you as good. You may not know how much I've hedged you around. You may not even have an idea of how much I've protected you from doing all the evil things that you would have done if no one had found out. General Revelation, uh, next thing in verse 7, really only takes us so far. I ask you to note here, um, this phrase, now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you. I'd like to suggest to you, and you're going to see this a couple of times in this passage, the general revelation can show us that we're condemned, it can show us our need, it can show us that God loves us and that he still cares for us, it can show us that God's fair, but general revelation itself does not include a message of salvation. For that, you need a prophet's voice. That's what we think this is. General revelation by itself cannot save you. For that, you need an advocate, an intercessor, a prayer with the Father. That's what Jesus does. 
General revelation can only take you so far. It can condemn you. It can teach some things about God. It's very fair in doing that. But without a prophet's voice and without an advocate with the Father, we still have no standing with God. So we learned some really important things here, I think, from Abimelech in this conversation. And so it raises the question, doesn't it? I mean, this is the question that many people are asking today. What about those people who have never heard? What about those people who have never heard the gospel proclaimed to them? What's going to happen to them? What's going to become of them? I have a radical thesis. Now, it's really kind of an old one. It's as old as the history of the Christian church. It's not very popular today. But then i got to tell you, it's never been very popular. It's not been popular since the day of the apostles, this thesis of mine. And it consists of these three or four points. Point number one, this is a part of my thesis. I, I believe that nobody is outside of the God sound of God's voice. I do not believe there's a single person ever born onto this planet that hasn't heard from God. I just don't believe it. They hear it through natural revelation. They hear it through their conscience. They hear it in myriads of ways. I just do not believe there is a person on this planet outside of God's voice. And secondly, I believe that God never judges anybody unfairly. The thing is that fair judgment doesn't get us there, does it? Fair judgment doesn't show us that we're going to get to God. Fair judgment shows us why we can't get to God. And so I have a third part of my thesis here. If I want to know about salvation, God will make a way. I believe that. I believe that there are the Corneliuses in the New Testament that didn't have a word from God, that wanted to know a word from God, and God sent them somebody to give them the word of God. I believe God has His marvelous, miraculous ways. If a person really wants to know, that person will know. I think... That's what the Bible teaches. I think that's reality according to Scripture. That's my thesis anyhow. Well, that brings me to the good news side of the deal. Verses 8 through 13. I want you to notice some things that are going on in this passage starting at verse 8 of Genesis chapter 20. In verse 8, it says uh, that early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials And when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Now, notice, um, he summoned his officials and told them what was going on. Abimelech is a very good pagan man. Here he's showing how transparent he is. I mean, I I might have kept this a secret. I I, I might not have told anybody I'd done it. But Abimelech is really a quite good man, isn't he? So he tells the officials at his court. Then verse 9, Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my whole kingdom? You've done things to me that shouldn't be done. So not only is Abimelech a good man because of his transparency, Abimelech is a good man because he's morally indignant. And he has a right to be, doesn't he? I mean, Christians do stupid things, don't they? Sometimes we need to be called out, don't we? And Abimelech has done that. He's a good man. He's called this believer Abraham out in Abraham's sin. That's good. I think that's a good thing about Abimelech. And notice another thing about Abimelech. He has a willingness to hear. 
And Abimelech has asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And there are some non-Christian people that are willing to hear us out. Now, there are some that aren't. There are some, the minute you say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm an evangelical, they want to write us off with a label. Well, you're a fundamentalist, you're a weirdo, you're strange. They, they They just don't want to go any further in the conversation, but not every unbeliever is that way. There are some people like Abimelech that are willing to hear us out. Abimelech was a truly good, relatively good, man. But now compare Abraham. This is a pretty shoddy answer on Abraham's part. He says in verse 11, I said to myself, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. In other words, he says, I sinned because you people wouldn't understand anything else. Now, then notice the second thing he says in verse 12. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she has become my wife. So it's sort of a partial truth. And so he's saying, it wasn't a big sin. It's just a little white lie kind of sin. Well, it wasn't a big sin. When in fact, in the ancient Near East, we know that adultery was called the sin. It was the sin in Abimelech's day. Now, notice then in verse 13... And we can tend to do this, don't we? God, uh, Abraham gets God in on the act. And when God had me wander from my father's house. Now, wait a minute. I thought God had called Abraham to a land that he was going to show him. But uh, Abraham is now turning this all around and saying, Oh, you know what? My life has just been this wandering life. And God is to blame for that. So that's Abraham's partial response. God is partially to blame for all this. And and then this one in verse 13. This is how, he says uh, in verse 13, When God caused me to wander from my father's I said to her, This is how you can show your love for me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. In other words, no big deal. We do this all the time. We do, this is, this is the way we live. This, this, this is what we, I mean, that's a pretty shoddy answer. And so I guess I have to agree that Abraham's sin shows that he comes up really short in compared to Abimelech. What can we say about his sin? Well, we can say he was cowardly. We can say that it was a deliberate sin. We can say that Abraham was dishonest. We can say that it jeopardized Sarah's purity and the promise. We can say that it misled an innocent man. We can say it eroded uh, Abraham's testimony. We can say it dishonored God. In fact, I think uh, Ray Pritchard got it right when he said, Abraham is the saint and Abimelech is the pagan, but Abraham looks like a pagan and Abimelech looks like a saint. And I have to conclude it would have been better if Abraham had just told the whole truth and if he had just trusted God and if he had just accepted the consequences but for all that and here's the big difference here's the scandal of the Christian faith Abraham is accepted by God and Abimelech is not Abimelech is a better man than Abraham outwardly speaking. Abraham is a worse man than Abimelech, outwardly speaking. But Abraham is the Christian, 
the believer who's accepted. It's Abraham's prayers that will save Abimelech. It's Abraham being the prophet that will say, what in the world is going on? He is the prophet. Abraham is. He will pray for you. And here we stand before the great scandal of the Christian faith. God justifies the ungodly. Remember the passage in Romans chapter 5? Let's just remind ourselves, guys, of who we are. If we believe in Christ. Notice this. There are four words in this passage that just drive me crazy. I don't like this passage. Paul is writing to the Romans and he says, When we were still powerless. That means I did not have any ability to bring myself into the kingdom. I didn't have any ability to save myself. I could not pull myself up by my bootstraps. I was not the kind of person that had an ability to be so religious that God would accept it. I was powerless. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's God's evaluation of Jim Fan. He died for an ungodly man. Not because I was holy, not because I was better, not because I was like Abimelech, and Abimelech has his own weaknesses. He died for me because I was ungodly. That's not kind. I don't like that verse. Very rarely, Paul says, will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners. Do you see it there? There's no avoiding it. I am powerless, I am ungodly, and I sin. I do sin. I have sinned, I continue to sin, I can't avoid that sin in my life. But that's not the issue. The issue is Jesus has died for me. If when we were God's, I really don't like this one, enemies. I was an enemy of God. I wasn't trying to keep His way, I was trying to keep my way. I wasn't concerned about his interests. I was concerned about my interests. I was an enemy of God. I was resisting him. I was combating him. I was battling with him the whole time. Do you see those words? I was powerless. I was ungodly. I was a sinner. And I was an enemy of God. It says, if when we were in, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. There's the marvelous thing. How much more will we be saved through his life? So why would God receive Abraham and not receive Abimelech, the great scandal of the Christian faith, not by works of righteousness which I have done, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. One of his books, uh, Warren Wearsby, tells the story of a man in England who bought a Rolls Royce when that company was still young. Uh, well, uh, he decided that in order to try it out and, you know, show it off just a little bit, it was a Rolls Royce after all in its, in its prime, in its heyday, he would take this holiday in, uh, in Europe. Uh, so he put his car on a ferry and he crossed the English Channel and he was driving his car through Europe and he was looking at all the sights when suddenly his brand new Rolls Royce, this beautiful luxury car, broke down. And there was nobody in Europe who had the ability, the tools uh, to fix this thing. So he cabled the company in England and they flew a mechanic in who did the repairs and got the car running and then flew back to England. And the man thought to himself, man, this is going to cost a ton of money. You're flying a guy over, fixing my car and then flying him back. This is just going to cost me a bundle. But he never received a bill the whole time he was on his vacation. 
Well, when he finally got back to England, he sent a note to the company telling what had happened, wondering uh, what the charge would be, and he got this reply back from Rolls-Royce. Dear Sir, Thank you so much for your letter. You need to know that we have no record in our files of any Rolls-Royce that any Rolls-Royce has ever broken down at any place at any time for any reason. Wiersbe says that's how justification by faith works. We fail. We break down. We run ourselves into a ditch. We live like Abraham. But our Heavenly Father says, I have no record of that. In fact, I have no record of any of my children that any of them have ever broken down at any place, at any time, for any reason. All I see is that they have been covered by what my son Jesus did when he died for them on the cross. Do you get it? That's why Abraham was accepted. That's what goodness is about in the Christian life. Jesus is our good. Jesus is our righteousness. We try to be like Jesus because of what he has done for us. We're not trying to measure up to somebody's standard. And then the third thing I notice is that, you know, Abraham did learn his lesson. Uh, Abraham has grown. He never repeats this sin again. He never does it again. That's a sign of growth. It took him a long, long, long time to get there. But now he's there, and he never does it again. And then secondly, Abraham now is entering into his mature stage. Some of the greatest events of Abraham's life are now to come. He's going to do things in this next phase of his life that he never could have done up to this point of time. Abraham has grown as a result of God using this sin in his life. Now that brings me to our last point here, and I can do this real quickly, our third and final point. You see, there's no bad news on this third and final point. It's all good news. It's good news about God's grace. I want you to notice a couple of things. Verses 14 and 15. I want you to notice that Abraham is graced. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, look, my land is there in front of you. You live wherever you like. Even if it's on the best place, even if it's the best pastures, even if it's the best, you take it. You live there. And, you know, inside of me, I I want to say, that's not fair. Person shouldn't profit from their sin. That's not fair. He He shouldn't be getting them. But that's not the point, is it? Remember, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Here's the gospel in the Old Testament. I will bless them, God had said to Abraham, who bless you. Abimelech, I think, is now getting that point. This is Abimelech's, can I call it, salvation. He's entering into the Abrahamic cup. He's blessing Abraham. And what's going to be the result for Abimelech? Well, we're going to see it a little bit later on. This, in typology is Abimelech's salvation. He's entered in... I get it. It's not by works of righteousness. It's not by things... So it's not talking about you know Abraham getting, getting, getting benefit because of his sin. It's talking about Abimelech getting salvation 
Because God uses sinful people like you and me to deliver messages in broken and spoiled vessels like you and me are. Abraham is graced. Even though he is a sinful person, God still uses him to bring people into his kingdom. Now notice the second thing. Sarah is graced. See it there in verse 16? Then then to Sarah he said... I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Now, according to the Mosaic law, which is going to be given later, 50 shekels is the bride price. And so if you do the math, a thousand shekels would be the price of 20 brides. And that's what Abimelech is saying about Sarah. He says, you know, you're, you're, you're golden. You're special. He's gracing her. She receives grace as a result of God's work in her life. And then notice in verses 17 and 18, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, slave girls, so they could have children again. Remember when I said early on there was some kind of a plague in the household and they they couldn't have children? Well, now they're healed, and they can. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Abimelech is graced, and I want to point you to two things that he was graced by. He was graced, number one, because he now has. The New Testament calls this an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Well, the typology of the Old Testament, he now has somebody praying for him before the Father. He now has somebody representing him before the Father. Abraham is like Christ. He prays to the Father, and then Abimelech is received on that basis. In the New Testament, Jesus prays to the Father, and I am received on that basis. Abimelech now has that. In picture form, he is now a believer. And then in second thing here, he's now a fruitful believer. What his, all the wombs were closed. No children could be born. But now, all of a sudden, Abimelech, who was concerned about being good and doing good and producing good, now all of a sudden God says, you know, I'm going to heal you and you can be fruitful. Not good. Fruitful is the key in Abimelech's life. So Abimelech is graced. Well, in Genesis 18.25, Abraham had asked God, will not the judge of all the earth do right in Genesis 20 God turns the spotlight around and he asks you and me I think through this story to consider three questions question number one is there a pattern in my life of the same old sin done for the same old reasons done over and over and over and my guess is if you're like me there probably is But in Genesis 20, God invites us not to give up, not to quit, not to despair, but to take those very sins and to give them to God and let Him begin to transform me from within. Second question. Do I really want to be talking about justice to God? I used to have a Sunday school teacher that said, you know, every time you point your finger at somebody, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. I think Abraham, Abimelech, and Sarah are God's three fingers pointing back and saying to me, I don't know that you want to be just kind of blithely blaming God for being unjust and for kind of blithely saying to God, I am a righteous person. You know, if you really look pretty deep, we're all tainted, we're all soiled, we're all spoiled, 
We all need salvation, don't we? I think that's a part of this chapter. And then question number three. Have we considered that the cross and grace really are God's final answer? Is that your final answer? People are trying to weave and bob and dodge today. And they're trying to say all roads lead the same direction. And you know, they do not. The Bible is so clear. There is one road to heaven and it always goes through the cross and it's always based on grace and it always includes the work of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate question, isn't it? The ultimate question. How's it between you and me and God's Son? That's the point of this chapter. I invite you to join me with prayer in prayer this morning. Lord, I have to confess that I stand before you convicted of my sin. I'm guessing that all of us do. Lord, I stand speechless before your righteousness. I have no claim on you. And my righteousness is so weak and shoddy even when it's there. Lord, I am amazed by your grace. I find it enough to leave my sin and my righteousness and any claims to it. Give those to you. Those are things that I just give up. And Lord, I now humbly receive your grace once again into my life. In Jesus' name, amen.